I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silvercore, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silvercore Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. I want to take a moment to remind everyone that in addition to the Silver Court Club, we also have an ever-expanding line of online training programs created by industry experts that is absolutely worth checking out. And for those who haven't done so yet, make sure to check out the Silver Core YouTube channel where we have tons of free content and giveaways. So like, comment and subscribe and join in the fun. Well, you asked for it and here it is. In this episode, Paul and I cover recent events as they relate to hunting during COVID. We take a stab at answering your questions. It turns out both Paul and I have a lot of opinions and as such, we weren't able to address every question. Don't worry, keep listening as we plan to answer more questions in future podcasts. All right. Silvercore podcast is back and I'm doing a remote podcast with Silvercore's Selger hunter extraordinaire Paul Ballard. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, but I think you're make, making a bigger deal. I just like the seal gear and that's it. We'll leave it at that. Hunter extraordinaire. <laughs> that uh, that will be in my memoirs written by somebody else after I'm gone if I ever achieve that, but I'm trying. I, I think we'll have to get that made into a t-shirt for our next hunting trip. <laughs> We've got some in- really exciting announcements from the provincial government as it relates to hunting and fishing. Well, the most important thing, I believe, is that the limited entry hunting appears to be going ahead. Oh, it's a full go. Yeah, they, uh, what did they say about that one? They said uh, limited entry hunting is open, but... Please try and hunt close to home. And that, that'll be good if you live in the lower mainland and, and your intended game is moose or perhaps thin sheep or something of that nature. A little hard to stay close to home. Yeah, definitely. And I think they also have a no refund as well if things get worse with COVID and there's no guarantee. So Yeah, no, it's funny that uh, we're hemorrhaging money to so many things, but your paltry little six bucks, I don't know. I can live with it, though, for the excitement. I, I have faith. I have faith. We're going ahead. As do I. Now, I'm looking on their website right now, Fishing and Hunting, COVID-19 update. So this is the most up-to-date information put out by the province, and Fishing and Hunting has been named an essential service. So if I look at it, essential services are those daily services essential to preserving life, health, public safety, and basic societal functioning. (laughs) They are the services British Columbians come to rely on in their daily lives. Well, it... I honestly believe if I couldn't hunt, I would die. So, you know, I put hunting right in there with with eating and, and breathing as far as I go. Um, in my day-to-day, it, it's good that they put that forward. I mean, I believe there's always sort of a, oh, I don't know, a suggestion that people are, are doing this to feed their family. Yes, I do feed my family game meat, but that's not uh, the sole source around here. There may be people who do live in, in more remote areas that are able to access a variety of game species close to home. And it's legitimately how they do feed their family with, you know, with bird and red meat, you know, so. Yeah. With the rules that they put out, they say orders and guidance for fishing and hunting. Only fish and hunt with members of your family or others you're living with. Okay. I guess that's. Well, you and I have to get married then, I guess. I guess so. (laughs) We have to move in and start living together. (laughs) Well, the thing is you do end up living together when you, when you do go on these hunts generally, right? You're, you're sharing a tent space, you're sharing, you know, the, you know, the outdoor kitchen space and everything else. Man, if we look at some of the other rules about the current COVID situation, social distancing, that's going to be there generally when you're hunting. You're not sitting right on top of each other. Perhaps you're going to share a blind, but I think most of us tend to spread out so that we're covering more of an area. The fact that the parties within your hunting group have maybe not traveled outside of the country, none of them work in, in an old folks' home. 
or mm. an extended care facility or something of that nature, not working in a mission institution or, or some of the other places where we know we've had large outbreaks. Also, it's not going to happen till the fall. And then uh, as we're starting to hear rumors that we're going to start opening up herd resistance, that's not the right word, the uh, herd immunization. Herd immunization could very well be coming well into play and, and be recognized before before we are going off hunting this fall. So I think six bucks now, well spent. We're likely going ahead on it. We'll have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. So the next tip they say is stay two meters, six feet from other people you come across. That's easy. Yeah, and if you do bump another party that you're not familiar with in the bush, you perhaps want to, you know, just make it clear, you know, stand there. Um, and generally, that's what we do. It's, so it's always uncomfortable to get too close. Mm. Deaf people, of course, you want to whisper to not disturb the <laughs> game. I, I'm, I'm, I am trying to make light of this, and I do totally appreciate the, you know, the seriousness of the whole pandemic that we're suffering in and and not to make light too much but uh well the reason i'm going over this is because i think it's important that people understand yes you can go hunting you can go fishing but there are certain responsibilities that we have to make sure we adhere to if we don't want further rights restricted further opportunities taken correct and and that is you know that is the the I guess keystone to all this what holds it together for us is if we do show good faith and compliance we're going to do well uh we had to shut down our chilliwack fish and game shooting range or the portion of the range because when as soon as this all began we started just to try and watch how people were behaving and they they weren't staying far enough apart Yet a real success story I can give you is all up the chilliwack river valley which I spend time almost daily up there are fishermen anglers i shouldn't say fishermen but anglers and and clearly they are all maintaining their social distance it's it's kind of unusual it's not like the uh, spring salmon run in the fall when you see uh everybody you know full contact fishing but you know the steelhead that they're fishing for now uh, cutthroat rainbows um bull trout you can see that people are are not on top of each other like you you typically see in the river Another sport, you know, that kind of goes hand in hand with this is golf. I, I live on, you know, the edge of a golf course out here in Chilliwack. And I'm watching, and when it first started, when they, they closed the golf course, then they opened it, and they were uh, restricting people to one person to a cart, uh, twosomes only. There was no threesomes, foursomes. And now I'm looking out. Now they got two people to the cart. They've opened it up to foursomes. Uh, the people seem to be pretty good. They're not touching the flag. They're bumping the ball off of a sort of a cylinder that extends from the cup. Mm. You know, there's ways around this, and there's ways that if we want to pursue what we enjoy uh, and we give a give a little bit, you know, to comply, we're going to be able to continue to do what we wish. And, you know, when we first heard about these, I should back up a little bit. It was the BC Wildlife Federation that really went to bat for hunters and anglers across the province and were in communication with the, the authorities to uh, essentially help facilitate this. Well, and, you know, BC Wildlife, WF is our voice. You know, the, the Wildlife Federation speaks on behalf of the resident hunter in BC. And really no one else does. When uh, when you talk about any changes to regulations, we are the representative of, of that that entity, uh, the, the resident hunter. There's lots of representation from, you know, the Indigenous folks, guides, outfitters. And uh, if guides and outfitters are, are well represented, we need to be represented as resident hunters. It is. It you know. It's very important that we have them in our corner, and they've done a great job to support us. Well, pretty thankful for that for sure. So here's the next tip they say. They say, and this is an order and guideline. So I don't know which one these all fall in. If it's an order or guideline, but do not share vehicles with individuals outside of your family or others you are living with. It gives good justification for those that don't own a, an ATV to buy one. Mm, exactly. <laughs> so or buy so two. now you can, you know, it's a lot easier to distance if you're on your own machine and somebody else. So, you know, so do your travel, get to wherever you're going and then, then climb on that new side by side, but uh, you get to put the dog in the passenger seat <laughs> of somebody else. 
So I guess talking about traveling brings us to the next one, fish and hunt locally. So what does that mean? That that really is tough. I mean, now, what is local? Uh, you know, you live in an area where you can drive for five minutes and you're in a fantastic waterfowl area uh, mm-hmm. with some limited opportunities and permission. I guess you could go blacktail hunting out there where you are. Yes. Uh, come the fall season, lots and lots of easy access from where I am at this end of the valley uh, for blacktail, uh, waterfowl, upland uh, in the form of grouse for sure. And if you could ever get the permission, of course, there's tons of farmers fields that have waterfowl, pheasant and the like, Mm -hmm. but there's no moose. There's no open season on elk. So I guess you'd be looking, uh, the Harrison, uh, well, that side of the, the other side of the Fraser up into the pit, Mm -hmm. uh, those areas where, but that's only two or three bulls, uh, that are available by limited entry in that area. So staying local, yeah, they, you know, I mean, if it satisfies you for the game species that are there, but what if staying local to you means uh, you're in an area where the mule deer population is very low and your option is only to take one mule deer? Going back to the sustenance thing, that's not a lot of meat to support the family. No. Nope. So I don't know if that's realistic or not. We have to go back to are the people that are writing these uh, bits of advice, are they familiar with what it's actually like to hunt? Because often I find uh, when I'm being regulated, I'm being regulated by, you know, and, and not to demean anybody or anything, but by somebody who works in an office who is probably much more akin to writing policy than they are to actually going out in, into the weeds and, and seeing how we are and how close we are and how we interact. See, I, I look at it, and I try and put myself in the mind of the person writing the policy. So when they say fish and hunt locally, what exactly are they trying to achieve? And I'm guessing you don't want, logically, to be introduced saying coronavirus, COVID from one community to another community. So that's your, if that's your big concern, and I can isolate to my vehicle and simply get out to Crown Land, and maybe I got a tidy tank on the back full of fuel, if I can drive back and forth across the province and not have to interact at gas stations or uh, with other communities, is that still hunting locally? Right. Yeah. And and I guess, yeah. Okay. Revisiting what you just said. True. If you remain completely self-contained from the time you leave your doorstep, um, travel over how many given miles and then arrive. So you've got fuel of your own. You've got food of your own. Yeah, that's true. I guess it is that one stop in a in a in a fuel up situation. Uh, if somebody is a what is it an asymptomatic carrier, they pass money across the counter, they they touch the gas pump. The next person comes along, who's a resident of a small community that doesn't have good medical facilities, or is an older person, an elder from the indigenous band that may be in the area. Yeah, I, you're right. I guess we have to be. Um, thinking in those terms and what we're what we're taking away. Uh, so many people that hunt, though, you know, you, you, they already live in a in a rural area, so they're going from one mm. small area to another. Maybe you look too at those small businesses that are in there that kind of do rely on the fact that people from other places coming in to buy fuel. I know that there's so many places where. I travel through on on the places I like to hunt because there's some kind of specialty bread that I want to pick up that, you know, enhances the hunting experience. I guess we just have to readjust and refocus and see where we're at once the season opens or comes closer to being open. Definitely fingers crossed on that. And the last three that we have, these are pretty common sense as it is, but these are really common sense. Wash your hands often, especially around communal areas such as boat ramps, gates, etc. Yeah. Wash your hands. It was pretty straightforward. Or carry, you know, like get a hold of some hand sanitizer and make sure you got a little bottle in your pocket. Make sure that you carry with you, you know, disinfectant wipes or something of the nature because there's not necessarily running water everywhere that you go. Good biodegradable soap and a little bit of water at the lake. Maybe that's the thing to, to look at too. A small bottle of Camp Suds. Jeez, is that a trade name I shouldn't give away? But I love that stuff. <laughs> Makes my hair soft. Oh, you don't worry about that. No, <laughs> I hate Al. <laughs> so, uh, you know, talking with DS Tactical, Martin there, and he says we've gone from being Western Canada's premier tactical supply store, and overnight we're now Western Canada's premier sanitizer 
Yeah. CTE is, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a, you know, one day they're selling body armor, the next day they're selling paper to protect your life. So yeah, strange state of affairs, isn't it? Uh, next one we got is follow all travel advisories and self-isolation requirements. Sure. Uh, follow all municipal First Nation community, provincial and federal closures, example, parks, infrastructure, etc. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, you know, our connections within BC Parks, our friends that are there talking to them, um, they are really working hard to come up with an idea as to how they can reopen the parks. Mm-hmm. And, and they are realizing that, you know, that's it's so critical for the mental well-being of, of, of the citizens of this, of this great province to be able to access this. How are they going to do it? How are they going to introduce or reintroduce uh, people to the parks? And so, you know, stay tuned as far as I can understand from them that stuff is coming and nobody is, is dragging their feet on that. So, ladies and gents, as of today's date of recording, we're doing this on April 27th. That's the current state of affairs for hunting and fishing in BC. And if you have any other questions on that, by all means, just email Silvercore and we see what we can do about finding some answers. There should be another podcast or two down the road. So do you want to get into an AMA? You ask me anything? Yes, yes. I was surprised by the questions that we got back. I was expecting, I should say, the level of maturity from the people that follow us is quite high. And the depth of some of these questions is uh, really, really had me thinking. So uh, why don't we start with the first one? You want to read it off? Yeah, now that I've just lost it here. Travis M. uh, from Eastern Ontario says, I've really been enjoying your podcast. Well, thanks, Travis. You always have interesting guests and present useful information. My question is, what do you think the best way, as of course it blanks out here, the best way to get more young people into the shooting sports or hunting? Uh, Firearms-related hobbies can get expensive quickly, and it poses a a challenge to young new shooters. That's a great question, Travis. Yeah, it is. Um, One of the, there there, you know, for for youths specifically, we're seeing the Maple Seed program. Now, of course, COVID is, is affecting all of us coming together, but watch as things open up again and, and watch for the Maple Seed project coming uh, locally to you, which is volunteers that will show up at the range. It's all based on the relatively expensive use, inexpensive use, pardon me, of rimfire ammunition. Uh, the principles of marksmanship are, are put forward excellent volunteers involved in that very very qualified people uh and we see that it's it's made its way out from he's calling from eastern ontario it's made its way out to from ontario out here to bc and i'm looking very much forward to to watching it in action and and hopefully being a part of it yeah maple sea is a great program and for anybody listening it's not just restricted to youths no that's true another thing though we still have to look at there's the Army Air Cadets, Sea Cadets that still have like an air rifle program. They don't uh, necessarily uh, shoot center fire, rim fire like they used to when I was a kid. That's really where I cut my teeth in competitive shooting was as, as an mm-hmm. Army Cadet. But that was like 1970, 72, 73, 74. But and you're using converted 303s, converted oh, yes. to 22, and then the FNC1A1 for your That's homework. right, the, the long branch 22, single shot long branch 22 with a micrometer sight on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, shot DCRA, BCRA with that. We actually got the ant shoots, like you said, after a while. I, I mean, I shot Bren guns as a cadet. Yep. A 13-year-old kit, I shot a Bren gun, you know, so it was and look how you cool back out. in the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I experience I won't forget, but you know, cadets is an opportunity. Most gun clubs have a youth section. I know at Chilliwack Fish and Game that we have a junior 22 program for not much money. A, a kid can get involved in that. Uh, some of the trainers, instructors in that are, are uh, established or very competent uh, competitive shooters that uh, can take a kid forward in the sport. And I'm looking through some of my notes they made on that one, and you've covered a number of them. Wildlife Federation, BCWF, they have youth programs. I think they got a little bit of heat lately because they had an ad up on social media that uh, didn't really reflect the changes once COVID came in, and they forgot to take that one down. But, you know, uh, it's, it's 
always troublesome to me that we have to eat our own. People look at an ad and sure, it was maybe produced back in December and this wasn't an issue in December. And, you know, the message is being put forward maybe in a, as a one of hope for when this is this is beyond us and, and that's where we're going to move towards. But it's not in the immediate or uh, in the immediate or in the moment. So, you know, grow up and and look past that. Recognize that's what it is. Now, I'm looking at getting people into getting younger people into the sport of hunting and, and firearms. And those are two kind of separate things, but they're also conjoined. A lot of people equate hunting and firearms as one one thing, but really they are kind of two different branches that kind of one side will share, the hunting side will share firearms. Firearms might not have any interest in hunting. So I'm looking at it. If you want to encourage young people to get into hunting activities, take them out camping. Yes, and 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 fishing. Hunting season is typically colder, wetter, uh, more miserable. But camping in the summertime when fishing season is on, that, that segues quite nicely into the hunting. That's a gateway drug right there. Oh, totally. And I always found when my kids, when they were young, uh, it wasn't going out in the boat and, you know, dragging terminal gear for big salmon all day, you know, where you're only allowed, you know, two or three springs, whatever the case may be. Go to a little pothole somewhere, you know, and worm and float, you know, something that's going to bring on lots of action, little rainbow tiddlers all day. And that, that really, you know, sets the hook so it does for their their interest and then once they get a little bit older take them up you know driving around the logging roads for while you're grouse hunting i still remember taking my my son when he was about four uh was the first time i ever took him grouse hunting a lot of fun you know getting to see you know he says what is a grouse anyways dad and i said well it it looks like a chicken uh, and he goes really and we were in the okanagan and we were driving around and there was some chuckers that were coming out, you know, we could see. And he goes, is that a gross? And I go, no, it's a, that's a chucker, not quite. And we saw something else. And uh, I think there were some partridges, some grays. And I said, that's not, those aren't gross. And we come around the corner. And we're, I had a little Ford Ranger at the time. And right on the road is a covey of about 10 roughies. Big covey. Uh, just like, oh, we've hit the gold mine. And I go, those are gross. And he goes, no, Dad, those are chickens. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just, you know, that was one of those moments. You know, I, had, I mean, it started it for him, but for me, it was just like, oh, I'll never forget that. No, Dad, those are chickens. <laughs> so they are chicken-like, chicken-like, gallinaceous, gallinaceous, gallinaceous. The great struggled with word That's for right. those taking the hunter safety course. So important for people to know what a gallinaceous bird is. Yeah. 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 Now, I, and when it comes, when I say camping or hiking or short stints out in the bush, but essentially instill a love for nature and their surroundings, and that can be done with foraging. And you don't even have to be a pro forager or a pro no. camper. You don't even need a lot of money to go out and do that if you want to spend a few hours just in the local mountains. Man, no kidding. I, you know, it's funny because I know that... Uh, your lovely wife, Tiffany, and yourself are, are doing the foraging thing. And my wife is out here pointing at some stuff in the garden. I go, you know, we should probably bring Tiff out here before we dig all that stuff up because <laughs> she might make a salad out of that for you that you're going to enjoy. So we're we're now, you know, going to knuckle under. I, you know, the, the odd, I'm a berry picker. There's no question about that. That's, you know, I forage for berries, but I'm ignoring those leafy greens that are down there too, that are in abundance. And as you say, a, a hunter, a gatherer, that's, that's, that's where we come from, you know, uh, that's really getting back to, to the ground. And, and I like it. You know, I had zero interest in foraging and a number of years ago, we were in the Sierra Nevada mountain range with renowned hunter and chef author Hank Shaw. It was me, him, and, and my wife, because my wife was really into it. So we're spending some time with him. And, and it is so much fun. I mean, he took us out. We're looking for porcini mushrooms. And I thought, great, I get to go out there and look for mushrooms. It's like a giant Easter egg hunt. And it turned out I was actually really good at it. And as we're going through, he's pointing everything out and like a pig looking for truffles. Totally, totally. He, he's pointing out all these different plants. Oh, there's a wild onion. There's some wild garlic. Oh, you can cook this up with. And he knows all the Latin names for it. And in just a, all around you, there's food. And from then a light bulb went on and 
I'm hooked. I love it. It's a skill that we should really take advantage of because there you are sitting in a hunting blind and you may be able to come back and make dinner that much better for the, the crew just because you took the time to pull up a couple of roots that were, were near you. And with no damage to the environment by doing that, as long as you're res being respectful of what you mm -hmm. take, don't take it all, leave enough so that it can propagate. It's all there. But we're kind of diverting though getting back to the youth thing and, and it was interesting what you started by saying there's the shooters and then there's the hunters and one of the important things is i say to and i do both i am you know into the sport shooting side of things but i do love you know firearms uh, as it relates to to hunting we can't be against one or the other group just because mm -hmm you shoot, you can't be against hunters, you know, saying, well, you know, I love firearms, but I would, you know, I think hunting is wrong. You can't be that way because your intertwinings of the firearm thing, you're hurting yourself by saying mm -hmm. that. You need to be tolerant of it, accepting of it. You don't have to participate. And that's the important part. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I go on. Where I was going with the foraging and out in the bush, instilling a sense of the outdoors, instilling a sense of, of nature. And then getting them involved with cooking and their food, understanding where that food comes from. So if you want somebody to be interested in hunting, I mean, where's the interest there for a young person if they're used to watching TV or playing video games or getting everything in very short info bites, to sit out in a hunting blind and start them off right there, they're going to be bored yeah. to tears. But if they actually have an interest in where the food comes from, that naturally leads into the hunting side as well. You know, and it's interesting how we're approaching things in uh, 2020 here. We like to deliver it, as you say, in small bites. If you could walk your youngster 20 feet from, you know, the, the trailhead, pick up a, an armful of stuff and just turn around at that point, head back to the camp and start either, you know, the frying pan gets up and, it, and the connection is there. Mm -hmm. As attention span and maturity develops and they can go further and longer, it, it develops. And, and yeah, you, yeah, keep it light. Keep it uh, interesting. I see a lot of guys um, are taking their kids out with, uh, you know, Game Boys. I, Game Boys probably, I'm dating myself, but whatever <laughs> the, the current uh, electronic devices. So when they're, yeah, they are sitting in the blind with, you know, either earplugs in so it's not making any noise the kid is able to keep themselves a bit amused because, man, it's hard for some kids to sit there and stare at a lot of nothing. Totally. Well, the last point on this that, the, uh, that Travis M. brings up is it can get expensive quickly. And I'd really, really like to emphasize it doesn't need to be expensive. I mean, you go on social media and you see everybody in the Gucci kit and the Gucci gear, but you don't need that to hunt. I mean, how many animals have been taken in blue jeans, flannel shirts, and uh, 303 Britishes, right? It doesn't have to cost a lot of money to get into the, into the sport. I remember my first tent was a tarp, and I just set that up with a ground sheet, and that's it. Absolutely. And I, it's, it's too bad. I mean, the uh, Boy Scouts and, and other organizations, which were the way to go for kids, you know, because, you know, the group would raise money. Uh, they would get group tents and group equipment to be able to share. I guess the interest in those sorts of things is waning um, in 2020. I mean, rock solid back in the, the 60s and 70s, I took with me to the Army Reserves. Most of my outdoor skills came from what I learned in the Scouts. Yeah. How to stay dry, how to stay warm, you know, how to stay, you know, entertained and, and happy and, and build a secure shelter. That goes back to when I was like a... a, a teen an early teen or preteen in some cases with the scouts Weird. i still remember that how do you stay warm remember the acronym cold you remember that one keep no. clean <laughs> avoid overheating wear loose layers oh. stay dry right yeah that's okay. going back to being 12 years old same program somebody had it more articulated than by the time you were around or you, you remember those things <laughs> But it, it is, you know, you're funny you talk about that. Oh, we're going to digress here. We'll save that up for an equipment uh, podcast, I think, that we've got in the in the mix there. So. I agree. Travis, Sam, I think we spent enough time on your question there. And if there's anything else you want to answer, just shoot us an email. I got one here from Bonnie S. It says, will the Silver Corps National Pistol Shoot be delayed due to COVID? And the answer, Bonnie, is I hope not. 
Uh, right now, we're reaching out to our affiliates and ranges across Canada. We're working with them to find COVID responsible ways to continue to shoot. We don't have a crystal ball, but if it needs to be delayed, we'll delay it. We understand that people want to participate. They need to go to their range in order to do that. Uh, a lot of ranges are closed. So right now, we're playing it by ear. It's still got, uh, I think it's around the end of summer is the, the final date. People are going to the range. They're shooting some targets. They're having a range officer that's there sign it off and confirm and they shot them as per the rules that are on the website. They mail them in and they can win. They got Drummond shooting supplies is come up with some steel targets. Uh, Alaska Arms has got a carbon fiber 1022 barrel. I can outdoors and poco military Good stuff. Yeah, they got the Canadian maple leaf engraved Glock 19 Gen 4. Uh, reliable gun. They've got a Smith and Wesson. I mean, these are all just free. Shoot, go, go have fun. Shoot the targets. Of course, there's kit. Yeah, I mean, what other match can you get into for that price? I know. And with those kind of rewards and, and prizes coming back, no, it's you stay the course, folks. Hang on. I mean, you know, I. I'm not telling you how to run things, but if worst case scenario, we can't get back to shooting soon enough, a couple of months of extension on, on the, it's not going to hurt anyone on the program. No. And then just, just gives us more the time. opportunity to get in there. Cause we've got, of course, silver Corps is giving away kit hats, clothing, stickers, swag courses, and we've got some new kit that's being made. So it might even play to the benefit. If it's extended a little bit, they get some extra and the latest, greatest silver Corps swag. Okay. Bonnie, I hope that answers your question. You got the next one there, Paul? I got one here from uh, A. Campo, who I think I actually know who this person is. Okay. Yeah, I think I do. Any advice or recommendations on GPS tracking devices versus old-fashioned maps? Take it away, Paul. Well, of course, when you say old-fashioned, that's me. Um, I go back to that whole Boy Scout thing, and uh, I have never met a map or compass that I didn't like. I've never met a map or compass that ran out of battery power. I never met a map or compass that, uh, that if I trusted, ever lied to me. The only person that ever lies to you about a map and compass is you. You get fooled. We are in a technological age where people want to see colors and movement and lines and get direction from an electronic device. I think, you know, my advice, if you're looking at a GPS... Make sure that you have the map and compass and the ability to use it fairly well before you get totally reliant on the GPS. The way they, they absolutely eat batteries, they, uh, you know, so you have to carry sufficient batteries to keep the things running. Uh, you have to understand that little tiny screen is not always the easiest thing in the world to interpret. Um, you know, larger scale, you know, one in 50, one in 250,000, even maps can be a lot easier to get your feel of things from. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's just me. Learn uh, how to do a resection. Right. Yes. You know, how can you, how can you lay out a couple of lines and, and draw them back on your map to pinpoint exactly where you are? I like GPS when it's dark. Uh, there's no question moving into a hunting area on foot has never been better than to be able to follow the arrows on your GPS uh, and sneak back into your blind. It can, you know, you can uh, drop crumbs as you're coming in and out of a good area. Uh, also help you pinpoint and get right back on top of a, you know, uh, a downed animal that uh, you've gone to get help for and or telling your friends where to come and meet you. You can give, you know, the uh, lat long to, to, to pinpoint where you are. Okay, mm -hmm. all that is there. But I'm still saying without a map and a, a compass as, as a safety net is probably, you know, there. And and I think you nailed it. Safety net. Can we mention names of the mention. company? Like Garmin is a fantastic product. I love Garmin. I got a 64S. Yeah, I, I love it. It's robust. Yeah, and I think. I got a 64C, but it's still, you know, it's working great. And <laughs> yeah. it sits there on the dash of my machine uh, and I pull it off and I put batteries in it and I carry it around with me. I put it in the same pouch in my, uh, in my day bag as the map and compass, funny enough. Mm -hmm. you know, so. And you know what else everyone has with them? Mobile device. And most modern mobile devices have GPS built into it that's not reliant on a cellular network. Right. As long as you keep your phone on it keeps track of where you are right it did my understanding of the technology if you shut the phone off it's not going to automatically find you no 
so on the GPS well if you've downloaded oh, really? the map. Okay. If you've downloaded the map ahead of time. Okay. Uh, so it's always that little signal that's going on in behind the you know the closed doors of your phone that gets you there, is it or no if you shut it off uh, and turn it back on again, it'll take a second to relocate you like any GPS would. Uh, if you're out of Wi-Fi or if you're out of Wi-Fi, yeah, in cellular range, it's going to not display the maps unless you've downloaded them. So for, yeah. for me, I'm like you. I like Garmin products. I've got a Montana on the side-by-side. I got the uh, 64 uh, or was it whatever the predecessor to that was. I uh, had that for many, many years. And... Uh, they if it's old, I got it. <laughs> uh, you know, though, going back to A. Campo, who asked this question, um, think of another thing of the advantage to using your phone, and that is becoming a member of the many uh, hunt apps that are out there. And, you know, without getting specific into any one of them, unless, you know, you, you know the one that you want to identify, I think they're all pretty darn good. You can uh, turn on your hunt app on your phone. It tells you... Uh, where you are it tells you uh what is the open season for where you're standing uh gives you warnings about closures or changes to the uh, the synopsis and regulations for for that area it's awesome and that's exactly where i was going next and i don't mind going there mark stenrus in alberta created a fantastic app called iHunter. and iHunter, one of the things that they have is I think you pay a subscription for it every year. If you want to get all of their stuff, it's like nine bucks a year. It's cheap. And yeah. they've got the public land overlay. So if you want to, even if you're not into hunting and you just want to know where you can discharge your firearm legally, lawfully, there's an overlay that tells you this is crown land. This is private property. So that's yeah, a and, useful. And that's important because there's lots of places, you know, when we say hunt close to home or stay close to home. You know, the lower mainland has uh, phenomenal hunting opportunities. And for those of you in other parts of the world, when we say the lower mainland, that's the area just outside of Vancouver, B.C. and up towards the Fraser Valley. Um, what would in many cases be interpreted to be an urban setting, uh, there is plenty of, of wild areas. And, and those specific areas open or closed to the discharge of types of firearms are going to be included in that overlay. You know, it'll tell you, yes, you're on public land, but you're still within a no shooting area or no center fire, uh, single projectile area or something of that nature. Want to move on to the next one there? I think we got AC Campo, was it? That was AC Campo, yeah. AC Campo. So I'm going to read one from Noah Brown, 1995. And... I happen to know Noah Brown because he shows up at every Silvercore club shoot and I swear the guy's got horseshoes hidden somewhere because he happens to win fantastic prizes every <laughs> single year. But he's, he says, just getting into hunting and making my decision on a pair of binoculars. My brother runs the Vortex Viper 10x42s, which work great for him. I'm a big fan of the buy once, cry once mentality. But when you have optics ranging from $700 to $2,000, Viper to Razor, for quality glass, how much is too much? The bigger question could also be, where should I spend the big money and where could I be more frugal? So Noah, what I did, since you're mentioning the Vortex product, is I just reached out to Mark Boardman at Vortex and asked him that. Just Mark comes back and says, hi Trev, this is an awesome question. The Viper HD series is a fantastic option. It provides incredible optical performance, but doesn't carry the price tag of, say, an Alpha Razor class UHD. A person will want to consider the game thereafter and the glassing techniques they're typically going to employ. If you're taking a casual look periodically, sitting down and glassing for shorter periods or mostly confirming game, conspicuous things that may be game if you've already identified with your eyes, I might save some money and go with the Viper HDs. They should do everything you need and more. In contrast, if you're locking binoculars down on a tripod and glassing for hours, the true benefits of a razor class optic will be realized. There is no question there are differences between each tier. At each tier, we want you to get the best optics available at that price point. If you go ahead with a razor UHD, you will not be disappointed. You will, however, be spoiled for life. Mark. So that's what Mark from Vortex says. Well, going back to what Noel Brown, 1995, says, <laughs> uh, to, you know, he says, buy once, cry once. I like that. I never heard that one before. But uh, I've always said to everybody, 
don't cheap out on on your glass don't cheap out on the glass that goes on your rifle but let's go to the binoculars you're going to use your binoculars more than you'll ever use your rifle glass mm -hmm. you're going to use it in almost every application whether you're going uh, grouse hunting or you're going for sheep in in the northern rockies you need good glass the point made in saying how are your eyes going to yeah if you're going to use them occasionally like for the we have a great view out of our back deck here so we have a couple of cheap pairs and i don't mean even cheap they're actually pretty good binoculars sitting here because all we're doing is hey let's you know have a look at what kind of duck is that it's only 60 yards away so that's all right we look for a couple of minutes and then back to the kitchen but if you're going to spend all day in a blind on a hillside in a valley bottom you gotta you gotta give your eyes that break and coated optics high quality you know ground optics glass on there that's going to make all the difference in the world you know do you need the most expensive mm, if you can afford it it's instant going to hurt you particularly if the warranty is good the armor on the body of the the actual instrument is good that's probably a lifetime investment you know and a one only buy cry once you know i agree and with binos now incorporating a lot of them incorporating the range finding feature of course, that costs yeah. a little bit more, but if you got the money, you can spend it. It's kind of nice to have it all in one unit. I guess the downside is if one goes down, they both go down, but I haven't had any of them go down on me so far. Knock on wood. No, uh, the only binoculars I've ever had fail were cheap ones. Mm -hmm. And what happened was fantastic hunt, uh, Northern Rockies for, for stone sheep. We glassed with our spotting scopes up onto the Alpine, climbed for five and a half hours to get up and pulled the, the binoculars out and they were completely filled with, you know, condensation from being close to my body. They mm -hmm. weren't watertight and absolutely useless. I couldn't make out the curl on the rams that was there or that we were seeing. And it was just, it was brutal. It was heartbreaking to not be able to, after all that investiture of effort to get to where they were uh, for the things I couldn't get them to clear up fast enough. The weather was really bad too, very, you know, misty and rainy and in and out. But if I had have had a good pair of binoculars, I would have easily been able to pull them out, clearly identify the target that I was looking at, be it legal or not. Spend the money, Noah. So Paul, do you want to take the next one? Yeah. So I, I love this name, the Beautiful Turbo Snail. It must refer to their <laughs> their off-road vehicle. Uh, the question is, I can't find the hunting synopsis for the 2021 hunting season. Where can I get a copy? Well, be patient, Grasshopper, because they, they typically don't come out till July of the year. July of 2020, uh, and it will be a two-year synopsis that will go from 2020 to 2022. The current synopsis, which is the uh, 2018 to 2020, will be in effect until July. So that covers off the uh, bear hunting and turkey hunting, which is pretty much uh, the only thing that's going to be open until that next synopsis comes out. The synopsis will be available in a hard copy, uh, typically available for places like the BC Wildlife Federation or your local hardware store, but also available online. And online's a ticket. And plug your hunting app because they usually have links right to the regulation. It's there and it'll all be updated and, and what you need. I do know that as far as the 2021 LEH synopsis is out and online, uh, that came out a couple days ago and uh, get on it there, my beautiful turbo snail. So I reached out to Don Makarovsky. I hope I'm pronouncing that Properly, she's a public affairs officer with Ministry of Forest, Lands, Natural Resources, Operations, and Rural Development. Say that 10 times fast. And what she had to say, and this is a couple of days old, was uh, the 2020 2021 limited entry hunting synopsis. This is only for the LEH lottery. It's anticipated to be online this week. And you already nailed it there, Paul. It came online, possibly today, she says, and it did come on that day. This synopsis is not being printed online only for the LEH. So for the 2020-22 hunting and trapping regulation synopsis, effective from July 1st, 2020 to June 30, 2022, this one is usually online in early June of the effective date, usually being the operative word, and printed versions are usually available in late June. This year, the online version is expected to be available around the same time. This synopsis will still be printed 
However, the date of printing is still under review. And so when speaking with other contacts over at Flynn Roared, what is that? Flynn Row? Flynn Roared? What do they call it now? Forest Lands Natural Resources. Operations. Yeah. Operations. Rural yeah. Development. It, it's a tough Where are you, there. Rob Wilson, when I need you? I know. Yeah. Come on, Robbie. They're saying that they are not... Their guess is as good as ours, but they're not feeling like a printed copy is coming anytime soon. So go online, look at the online one. And if you want something to carry in your pocket, either A, download it for free, keep it on your phone as a PDF document, or check out iHunter. It's got it on there. Yeah, I think we answered uh, the beautiful Turbo Snails question there. I think so. And a fantastic name too. Yeah. So I've got another one here. This one goes a little deep, and I don't know how far we want to go down this one, but maybe we'll just touch in high-level notes. This is uh, NSFW gravy, not safe for work gravy. How can the fire... Not safe for work, yes. Yeah, someone's got something they send you over and they got NSFW on it. It means like if you're at work, let's not open this one up. Okay, gotcha. How can the firearms community bridge the gap with those who have no appreciation for hunting or target sports? How are we all going to get along? Wow. Depth. Not an easy question. And we struggle with that a lot. I often, and and have been uh, a Canadian Farm Safety Course instructor since 1994, and longer than a lot of people that are our listening audience have even been alive for, um, and I'm telling you, I talk to every one of those groups. I says there's there's three groups, distinct groups out there in society. There's the firearms enthusiasts or those that are interested in it. There's the fence sitters. And then there's those people out there that are just not going to hear any part of it. Mm-hmm. And, and you can measure the success and bring in those anti-gun people over every once in a blue moon. But the most important people for us as the firearms or the firearms or hunting community used to approach the fence sitters. And what we need to do is present ourselves as mature, dependable, law-abiding individuals. Um, We may have political views that that might be more to the right. I I have to be honest with that. I I typically find within the firearms community that our views are maybe a little bit more right-wing, but not to the extreme, and and don't take things to to the extreme. Don't present yourself as stereotypical. Mm. You know, don't present yourself in a fashion as I sit here with my camouflage shirt on. And but, a bear rug you know, don't present you. And a bear rug behind me. But don't present yourself in a light that could be construed as negative. It's just like what we do where we went back and you said there's the BC Wildlife Federation promoting a program that's coming up and immediately people don't look at the value of the program. They look at the pictures and say, hey, that doesn't promote social distancing. So that's what you're kind of up against. You need to be positive. You choose your words that aren't slang or or misinterpreted. I mean, I know that uh, not safe for work gravy (laughs) i like it Uh, is talking about firearms specifically but i go to something in the hunting community the phrase that kills me trophy hunting Mm. trophy hunting used by the aunties or those that don't hunt typically means poaching Mm -hmm. they're talking about you know something is shot and killed and left to rot pictures taken and maybe antlers or horns chopped out of the skull of the animal Mm. that's not trophy hunting that's poaching that's what they're saying is trophy hunting. Well, it's not. Trophy hunting, in, in the truest sense, an accomplished hunter is, you know, selective, you know, acquisition of your target, taking all the edible portions with you. In many cases, taking that uh, set of antlers or horns and proudly and reverently displaying them for others to see. My bear is here with reverence. I ate the meat from that bear. My family ate the meat from that bear. I didn't shoot that bear just so I could put its hide on my wall. I knew that that was meat, Mm -hmm. quality meat for the family. I knew that that bear was not part of a family group. It was not just a matter of taking it so that there was going to be hair and, and, and hide on the wall, which is in so many cases what people intimate when they were use the words trophy hunting. They need to learn what poaching is, and we as hunters typically know that. 
getting back to the shooting side of things, uh, bumper stickers on your car, you know, that promote. I don't call 911. Right. I don't call 911 or this fi- vehicle protected by, you know, insert is applicable firearms company, you know. Keep honking. I'm reloading. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Those kind of things, not good. Um, many people that are fence sitters or aunties, they look at a firearm as a thing of power. You know, you can tell definitely a person that's never had a gun or used a firearm or been around them, you know, often talks about, well, if I had a gun, I, I'd kill those people that hurt those puppies. You know, mm. well, that's not a thing to say. You no. Know? Yeah, we love puppies and it's wrong that somebody would hurt puppies. But that immediate default to the firearm being, you know, the instrument to, to level the field or impose your will on other things and that are uh, not on other things, but on other people we should you know, I struggle with that. I was a law enforcement officer for 35 years, carried firearms every day that I was on duty. And, you know, so many people talked about, well, that ridiculous statement. Well, you've got the gun here. So I guess it's, you know, it's what you say. No, I think uh, as you're going on here and I'm looking at my notes, I'm wondering if you took a peek at my notes before uh, going on air here somehow from Chilliwack, because either that or great minds think alike. But I've got... <laughs> <laughs> but I've got well they do they do of course I've, I've got be a positive face for firearms ownership yeah. I've got enjoy your passion share your passion with others change the dialogue and you've touched on a bit, bunch of those points how do you change a dialogue well by being that positive face by not having the stereotypical redneck bumper stickers and you're right it is I would say something very similar to what you say. You have your firearm enthusiasts, you have your anti-gunners, and then you've got everybody else in between. And you know what? That's the biggest audience. The anti-firearms people are very, very vocal. The firearms people tend not to be as vocal or they, in a lot of ways, are, there are those in the community that are poor representatives for the whole their community. Their hearts are in the right place. Their heart oh, is absolutely. in the right place. But... You know, not everybody is articulate or can put their point across and their the way they speak comes with so much passion that it's almost detrimental to the cause. And I, you know, take a take a breath, think about what you're gonna say and how it would sound. Walk a mile in the other person's shoes. There it is. And and see how they'd be receptive to it. I've got a point here. It says understand it says understanding and compassion. Having compassion for other people because you nailed it on the head. For the people who do not like firearms, it's generally embroiled with high emotion and or fear. And for people who are firearms enthusiasts, the emotion might be different. And the fear, I would imagine, isn't there. I should hope not. Shouldn't be afraid of these firearms. But putting yourself in the shoes of the other person who's trying to argue and say, you shouldn't own firearms or people shouldn't be allowed to hunt. Well, why are they coming from that position? And guess what? You're probably not going to be the person who convinces them otherwise in your 10 minute, half hour conversation. So maybe being the most positive role model for firearms ownership or for hunting and showing compassion will help all those other fence-sitters look and say, huh. So I've heard some very emotional diatribe on one side, and I've mm. heard the other side presenting a very responsible view. And that's one way, to, I think, anyways, to get the point across to those fence-sitters. And, yeah, and what you have to do is, you know, respect, like you say, compassion is there. Typically, fear comes from... And, and when I say ignorance, I don't want the negative connotation of ignorance. Like, you know, it's just so not knowing. Say, well, you're ignorant, you're ignorant. But ignorance is just unfamiliar with, Sure, you know, to learn the safety aspects surrounding proper firearms use. Uh, what we what we do train people in order for them to get the, the licensing and, and what the impositions on people and the links that the, you know, I would say Joe firearms owner goes to to properly secure their firearms at home. It it really is often driven by what we might encounter in the media. You know, man charged with unsafe storage of a firearm because, you know, someone broke in and stole his rifle. 
But what we don't see in the media is how many million firearms not stolen because they were properly secured when the house was broken into and other electronics and things like that were stolen, but the firearms were not because they were in a vault or safe that couldn't be entered. It sounds corny, but it's true. We don't hear that. And that's what people who are in that anti or fence-sitting position need to recognize. Not every firearm owner is looking to impose their will on others by using their fire. In fact, very few are. Very, very few are. Agreed. Microscopic portion of the overall ownership of firearms are those kind of people. And they are, like the hunters that you know we were talking about before, are poachers. They're not firearms people. Mm-hmm. They're criminals, mm-hmm. if that's the way they're thinking. So it's it's going to be tough we've struggled you and i because this has been a part of our life since we were children uh we've struggled with it we've matured in it we have grown because we have both trained and dealt with so many people that had no knowledge of the subject matter until they came into it um and and like i say it's it's something that uh, i think about pretty darn regularly pretty darn regularly And, and i think you got it with that ignorance thing what a person doesn't understand, they tend to fear. And what they fear, they generally want to destroy. So help people understand by being that positive change yourself. And not to gloss over LE303, I'll read his question, but we basically just answered it here. It says, you need to figure out how to get the 2.2 million firearm owners to stand up and say or do something or anything. And I yes. think those 2.2 million firearms owners can stand up and say or do something at the very least in how they comport themselves and how they present themselves in person, online, and then from there participate yes. in the gun orgs, in your yep. gun groups. Yeah, because you're, you're not uh, doing any better for the cause by name calling. You know, if you're being called a, a derogatory name because you own a firearm, well, then turn around and telling somebody who is against firearms they now have a, a derogatory name as a result it, it just doesn't work it just it creates so much ill will there are people that have legitimately had their lives altered by gun violence and mm-hmm. i would never seek to cause them to change their mind as to you know what it is they are they've lost a loved one they've they've experienced something uh, as a result of gun violence or the misuse of a firearm and in every case that person is a criminal if that's what they've done by a criminal act but they can't get past focusing on the object as opposed to the act Mm -hmm. right you know it's the object you know firearms unfortunately started their life as weapons we don't even use the word weapon uh with regularity in teaching the firearm safety course that's not a word we we refer to them as what they are they're firearms that's Mm -hmm. that's it but the gun as a weapon can be so easily vilified but the gun is not capable of thought or action on its own it's an object it's mm. what's in the mind of the individual that holds it. And that's a really mature and informed way to look at it as well. Uh, I don't know. It's, it, it is a tough one. It is a tough one. You want to move on? We have K1S8N or Kiss Satan, I think is what it's supposed to be. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm to try and... <laughs> How can I get into hunting if I have no one around me that does it? How can I get into hunting if I have no one around me that does it? K1SADM. Well, I don't know about kissing Satan, but uh, that's a great question. So maybe if it was, you know, uh, Pat the Pretty Kitty, I would tell you, uh, if you want to get into hunting and you don't have anybody around, there's a couple of options. One is uh, when you take your hunter safety course and there seems to be somebody else that introduces themselves as, hey, I'd really like to get into this and I don't know anybody else that's interested uh, there's your first person. There's lots of people that get out there armed with information that they've gleaned from the net, talking to other people, and it's their first time. And I run into them all the time when we're out in, in the field. Uh, yep. My advice, don't take on a moose hunt by yourself as a novice. That's not where you want to go. Spring bear hunting, done relatively close to a road, paying attention to all the 
advice that you could get off the internet is not beyond the realm of somebody who's never hunted before to get into. You could start that on your own. Finding a friend that's like-minded to get out there, that's another help. The trouble is we tend to form a group of friends that we hunt with and we're very reluctant to bring other people in there. We have a cohesive group. You and I hunt together, good friends, Rob Wilson, Mike Welty. We were a group that came together, not having been together before, but man, we just, we gelled. It was just, it was fantastic. And, And that happens. Now, everybody's got something to bring to the table, and even neophyte hunters can come together. And that bit of support from the other guy that doesn't know anything to support you in what you're doing, just be careful. When you're going to get into this and you're going to do it on your own or with somebody else that isn't that experienced, look five times with those expensive binoculars that we talked about earlier. Make sure you are getting good in the off-season at identifying the correct game species. Those are things. Now, Washington State uh, has a, a mentorship program, and what they'll do is those that are interested in becoming mentors, it's called the Master Hunter Program. So the Master Hunter might be involved in teaching the firearm or the hunter safety course in Washington State. Uh, they have experience. They're willing to take a new hunter under their wing and go out there hunting with them, uh, help direct them to good, no, I shouldn't say good areas, but into the area and how to, how to learn how to hunt, basically. Now, there's resistance for that here because people would try and charge money. Uh, hmm. And charging money to do that is guiding, and you can't guide without a license, you know, that's, that's the problem. So if you're, if you're doing that, the Guides and Outfitters Association is, is all over not wanting anything like that to happen. But in Washington State, the reward for the master hunter is access. It's kind of like reduced odds on limited entry hunting. The master hunter is now allowed to hunt in areas that are restricted to other hunters. They're allowed access to their public lands down mm-hmm. there that are managed by Washington State Fish and Wildlife, uh, where other hunters aren't allowed to, to hunt. Those are the rewards that that master hunter would get. And I, I would love to try and develop something like that here. I, I struggle with how do we present it and how do we get it forward. That, from a new hunter's perspective, if you're listening to this, say, write your, your MLA and say, you know, is there any way that uh, the Ministry of the Environment would consider opening up opportunities for new hunters to get beyond just the hunter education that's done in a classroom to get out there and sit in a blind or or hike over a hillside with somebody that knows what they're doing and that that person could be rewarded for that mentoring by having some advantage now they do have waterfowl heritage days yes which is something we've we've had in the past i think uh, i'll have to check out kind of where that's sitting i think there's some changes happening to that one right now that's one way to get into it when i look at it sure it's great to have somebody else to go hunting with but you can go hunting by yourself as well there's nothing stopping somebody from doing the internet research Seeking out a mentor is very, very important if you want to really speed ramp your your hunting knowledge and experience, but you can take your time and go out there and do it slowly. Now, if you're looking for a mentor and you go online and you go to the hunting forums, you have to keep in mind that you will not be well received if you say, hey, I've never hunted, I don't have a vehicle, I don't have a firearm, but can someone take me out to their honey hole and uh, show me what's up? Nobody's going to give you the time of day. No. So you have to, you definitely have to approach it with humility. Gun clubs are one place. There's no shortage of people in the firearms community that want to share their passion with others, but approach it with a humble confidence. I like that. Yeah. That, yeah. And just going in, don't, th- don't act like, you know, anything and just say, I, you know, I'm, I'm here to learn and be supportive. And, and one of the things that can happen too, is you get older guys that have maybe lost a hunting partner, you know, who, you know, through physical disability or just advanced age, they're no longer hunting together. But you have somebody who's got lots of experience and enthusiasm that could sure use a strong back and (laughs) a hearty attitude to help Mm. carry that game back in out of the cut block to the truck or, or pack it over a hillside. That kind of an exchange is not unheard of either. I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, to be fair, if you take some time, you may very well find somebody... I just want to kind of, I don't want to dwell on it 
in a negative sense, but when you say hunting by yourself, I, I still say going completely by yourself is not the best thing to do in the very beginning. You know, solo hunting is an experience, you know, that we should all try at some time in our life. But the solo hunting, hold on, you know, in your first, you know, couple of seasons that you get out there, go with somebody else. It really is for, for safety, for outdoor safety reasons, and also just that, you know, sounding board of having somebody there to, to say, hey, do you think that's a whitetail or a mule deer? Are you sure it's got four points? You know, those sorts of things. That's probably more beneficial. Solo hunting, if you've been doing this for a few years, if you haven't done a solo hunt, you're missing out. Man, the, the way you get tuned to your environment when there's nobody else there to interrupt you, fantastic. But there is other types of hunting other than just big game, like rabbit. Oh, yeah. Grouse, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's true. So Jenny Lee did a podcast with her a few weeks ago, and she said, I want to get into hunting. Took her hunting course, knew nothing. Vancouver Urbanite works in the uh, IT software, high-tech world. Met two other people on the hunting course. They knew nothing. Similar backgrounds. And what do they do? They all went on a fly-in hunt. The three of them went for caribou, were successful. Wow. And I'm not saying K1S8N here is saying I can't go hunting because I don't know anybody, but I've heard that from other people before. And I say, just get up and do it. I mean, it doesn't mean you necessarily have to be successful. Go out there and do your research, get out in the bush, go through the process, do your spotting. Take your time, like you said. Make sure you're yeah. in the right area. You're in a legal discharge area. It's the right type of animal. It's a safe shot. And if you're a little bit unsure, stop. A group, there's always going to be another opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of experience on fly-in hunting trips, self-guided trips. Uh, I believe some other people would call them as a resident hunter in British Columbia. I have, I've done over uh, 15 different experiences in the Northern Rockies where, you know, we have been dropped off in periods of time from 10 to, to 20 days to hunt on our own for moose and caribou, elk, grizzly bear sheep goats and it's been a fantastic experience for me and i think i would love to to talk that over with people in the future on an on upcoming podcast or in the same format that we're going through here was hey i'm thinking of going on a flying hunting trip what do i need to know before i begin what equipment is appropriate? How do I approach an outfitter to get placed on either a fly-in hunt or a jet boat hunt or a pack-in horseback hunt? Those are some interesting topics in the, in the future. So guys and gals, if that's something that's interesting to you, let us know. There's lots of ways you can let us know. If you want to hear about Smoke it. Smoke signals and flags. We like that. Send us a note. Let us know. Yeah. Anyone else who we didn't get to your questions, we will get to them on a future podcast. Stay tuned. Anyone else who has questions they want answered, write it in. Let us know. Just let us know in the comments. All right. Thanks, Paul. It was really good having you. That was okay. uh, a lot of fun. All right. All right.